Good afternoon or good time of day whenever you're listening to this. I'm Mark Ablett and you join me for another episode of the Family Law Podcast brought to you by Pump Court Chambers. Today we're partnering up with Integrated Dispute Resolution to bring you a combination of expert and barrister to look at all things ISW. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast Sylvia Oolawi, who is an ISW from Integrated Dispute Resolution. Sylvia has a vast amount of experience working at the front line of the most challenging instances of child abuse and has completed uh, a whopping uh, over 100 assessments and reports within pre-proceedings and in family proceedings. I'm equally excited to be joined by Victoria Ellis of Pump Court Chambers. Victoria has been at the top of her field for my entire career, really. In 2015, she was shortlisted for Junior Barrister of the Year, and she's ranked as a leading junior in the latest Legal 500 rankings. Victoria combines her expertise in the family finance and private children's sphere with the semi-crossover fields of inheritance law and court protection. She regularly speaks across all four areas of expertise and is no stranger to complex children proceedings, which is what we'll be discussing today. Hello, both. Welcome, Sylvia. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, Mark. Hi. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you very much for joining me on this Friday afternoon. I, I know that even in lockdown, people have better things to do. Um, we're here to talk about private children proceedings. Uh, and obviously, we're very lucky to be able to have the legal, legal perspective and the, the social worker's perspective. Uh, I think I, I just want to start at, right at the beginning in terms of looking at the role of the independent social worker in, in private law proceedings. At what stage, uh, I'll ask Victoria first and then, and then Sylvia, at what stage will we be looking to get an ISW involved in private law proceedings? I think that can really vary. Um, and I think that we all know that there's scope in children proceedings. I think it's when you get to that point when you realise that you are dealing with slightly out of the norm, that this isn't just a family going through a very difficult breakup. This isn't just mum and dad struggling to figure out how they're going to move forward. When you start to get those flags, whether it's at the Fahudra or whether it's further down the line, that you really have a problem. I would say that in most of the cases when I get ISWs involved, it's probably by the time that you've had your DRA, you come to your second hearing, you might have had a little bit of input from CAFCAS or a social worker for local authority, but you've started to realise that you've got a bigger problem that's going to need some actual intensive work to try and build this family and put them back together. Or alternatively, you realise that you've got young people who have got some very strong views and you've got a problem. I think that the input of the ISWs, it's the minute you realise you've got that block that you're going to need additional help is when you should be getting them in regardless of where in the proceedings you realize that point has come that's interesting so for you it's 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 not just it, it's more about a case specific example you might have had a section 7 report already for example and you're looking at well maybe we need a bit more depth <laughs> yes very much so and you know i'd be really interested to hear what sylvia says but in some of the cases i've it's done it's really been when you get that section 7 from professional who you hear for the first time perhaps what the children are actually saying because you've heard from mum and dad already in their position statements but all of a sudden you hear their voice and it's when you perhaps realise you've got some really entrenched children, you've got some rational hostility, you know children absolutely adamant they won't go but you can't really find a reason why or when you have really severe alignment to perhaps mum or dad um, and it's at that point that all of a sudden as professionals we can take stock and say well I think what we do need here is the additional expert um, advice and help that can come from an ISW or conversely you know when you've got children refusing to see dad 
the extra time and focus that you can perhaps bring to that to break through a barrier that Kafkas haven't got the time or funds or means to do can just be invaluable. Yeah, um, yeah, completely. Uh, Sylvia, I mean, how about you? It, I, and I suppose uh, just, just to, just sorry, just to build into that, have you ever had a case where you think, God, I really wish that I'd been asked to get involved earlier? Absolutely. And also I think the benefit of having an ISW involved is that they can spend that time with that, you know, that child, that young person and really dig true at the wishes and, and feelings of that child and bring that to the forefront of the private proceedings. So, Cause it's obviously about the child's best interest that we're looking at as well. So yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I agree. ISWs do obviously not completely, uh, if there is an existing section seven report that's already been done and maybe an ISW is required due to the complex nature of the case, it doesn't, you know, our role isn't to come and rewrite the section seven, but it's about bringing forward and, you know, additional pieces of information that would be valuable to the court in making a decision. But yeah, I mean, presumably there are some cases where it's beneficial to just say, Kafkas are there, they do a great job, but actually we've got, a, we've got the cash here, we can afford an ISW, let's get someone involved at the earliest possible stage. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, some cases are quite complex. You, you know, you've got we've got parents with additional vulnerabilities um, and having that support from the ISW really does make a difference. I completely agree. I suppose there's two there's two elements to this. And I, I it's picking up on what Victoria said slightly that firstly, it's the sort of the work that an ISW can do. But then secondly, it's the then the the, the amount of time they can spend doing the report and in terms of Sylvia in your experience when you're asked to be an ISW is it more to write an in-depth report or is it to actively do work with parents it is about it, it's a mixture obviously having those dialogues uh, with the parents um, and that would usually um, include you know observing contact uh, the interaction as well as writing the reports because obviously that needs to be presented to the court so uh, it is a combination, but I think when you're de dealing with difficult uh, parents uh, or quite challenging situation, it can be time consuming, but it's about investing, you know, kind of getting all that information together to, to you know, to be able to make an informed decision. So, yeah. I, I suppose the benefit of effectively going down the, the, the private sphere in the private sphere is that you tailor it, don't you? You tailor the process to the individual needs of the case. Yeah. I mean, Victoria, I for you, what's the what's the benefit here in terms of the cases that you deal with of potentially having a resource where not only do you get a really thorough report, but active work can be done that you just wouldn't get with a Section 7 report? The value is huge. I mean, I've had a couple of cases in which you've had very entrenched children who just need that time. And it can be a protective mechanism. You've got parent A who allegations have been made against, turned out it's not right. Children, however, are fearful. They need that security that an ISW brings. A, it reassures the parent that's anxious, mm. but, it, but it also gives the children confidence to obviously spend time with that parent outside of a contact centre. Because the reality is once you get children to 10, young teens, contact centres don't really work. They're, they've grown out of them. And the flexibility that an ISW can bring is fantastic. But you also, I think, have that work as well. Mm. If you need supported conduct and supervised conduct to rebuild a relationship 
or to even assess the state of relationship. I think that the fact that the ISWs can bring their experience to assess risks, but also to work with children, try and understand fears, overcome fears, put in a plan in place that means that they can have confidence in seeing that parent. I mean, I'm a huge fan of CAFGAS and obviously the work contact centres do, but they don't have the same amount of time that can be given. You know, you've got CAFGAS officers, you've got two hours every fortnight, perhaps they're going to see this family. CAFGAS officers might see a child two, three times if you're lucky in, you know, in a section seven report. Some families need that extra attention, I think, that comes with an ISW. Mm. I mean, typically, Sylvia, how long would you, how many times would you be meeting? I mean, at the moment, I'm currently working uh, with a young child, age five, uh, mom and dad are separated, it's private lot proceedings, and I've been seeing this observing contact for the last five weeks, and I'm due to write a section seven report in the next three weeks, so that is a wealth of time that I've mm. invested in actually observing not just contact but also observing the interaction between parents because that then gives you a flavor reduced about how would they be able to call parents because obviously you know they're going through separation uh divorce or whatever you know and that can be quite you know difficult for parents in itself and having kids I mean that could turn to a safeguarding concerns and it can open up all manner of you know mm. difficulties for children you're managing with emotions and feelings so it's about also bringing that expertise into into the assessment so being able to unpick any safeguarding concerns being able to obviously comment on how parents are able to communicate despite the difficult situation they're in um you know maybe commenting on how they'll be able to co-parent you know being able to give them some useful tips on how they can manage difficult conversations you know so I think that's yeah and I suppose that that feeds into something like feasibility of a shared care arrangement for example we Mm. have I'm sure we've all seen cases where in principle it might be suitable for the child but you look at the interaction between the parents and you just know it's not going to work because of that absolutely yeah Um, and it's having that sorry no no (laughs) Sylvia I didn't have to cut you off (laughs) you go (laughs) no please please no because I'm quite passionate when it comes to it, it really saddens my heart when I see parents just not being able to put aside the difference and I know it's really difficult you know you've been in a relationship with someone for so many years and now they're like your worst enemy but obviously there's a child in the center of all this and it's so easy for parents to just lose focus and 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 the difficulty is that emotional abuse is so hard you know it doesn't show on the face but it's actually more damaging Mm. um, to children in the long term so yeah I mean, again, is, is that something that you, if you recognise that and you flag it up, are you able to say, I can do this work with the parents to sort this acrimony out or try to help? Absolutely. Or maybe signpost them to other services that would be really beneficial. You know, mm. like, you know, if I'm not in any way suggesting that it's dads that Sol is the perpetrator, but, you know, if, say, mom's the perpetrator of the abuse or the, you know, that's led to the separation or the reasons why they're not together or separated or going through divorce, it's about, you know, signposting them to services that would be quite useful to help them in changing their behaviours or kind of understanding how their behaviours impact on their child or children. 
Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, Victoria, are there any cases that you pick up and is there any kind of particular kind of case that you pick up and it kind of just screams ISW to you? I think so. I think some of the alienation cases I've done have really benefited from having ISWs, particularly when you have one a child for whatever reason or a group of children, a sibling group, refusing to see the parent, normally the non-resident parent by that point. Because they have a narrative, they've adopted a narrative, whether rightly or wrongly, or because the parent they're with has consciously or subconsciously imparted that to them. And you've got to have somebody to break through that wall and to take them out of the environment they're in when the non-resident parent is you know, the root of all evil and bring them out of that sphere, take them to somewhere else when they can openly talk with a professional about how they feel, what their wishes and feelings are and why. Because often I think that you get this trap where children are incredibly bright, they pick up on things and they know what mum and dad want them to say. And if they've got loyalty particularly to one parent, they can be, it seems to me, and this is just from a lawyer's perspective, I've never get to meet the children very rarely, hmm. that they are desperate not to alienate the parent that they feel loyalty to. So they'll side with their views because they don't want to hurt them, because they don't want them to be cross. And getting that professional to come in and spend the time to unravel that so that their actual voice can come through, I think can just be what can change a case and change the structure of a case from one that the courts may just give up on and say look I'm sorry mm. we've tried you know our normal bag of trips this isn't going to happen to one that's got real hope of moving forwards. I completely agree and that takes time you know you you need that time to be able to invest in you know developing a relationship with that young person or that child to be able to unpick those um dynamics and to be able to reword things so the child can maybe hope, hopefully start to express how they actually feel because mm. so often at times they do want to have a relationship with with um with the other parent yeah the non-resident parent but it's obviously control from yeah it's um it's it's a, a mess. I, I, the mm. other the other kind of case that I, uh, springs to mind for me when I've used ISWs is relocation cases, Very because much. again it's the the detail that you mm. could that, that that goes with it. I mean, internal or external it's always going to be a very detail driven application. Sylvia, I don't know whether you, you you deal with relocation cases particularly. Not so much, but I have come not recently I haven't dealt with one recently but I have in the past obviously dealt with um cases like that but not in the last mm. two years I would say um yeah I suppose it's just it's it's another well it's another example of a case where time the your mm. your your that you have the luxury of time when you're an ISW mm. and it, it it can make a real difference absolutely do yeah. you ever do you ever work have you ever worked in a case in conjunction with CAFCAS or is it effectively it's either CAFCAS or ISW? I have worked um, in, in with cases where there's CAFCAS involvement as well as an ISW. Um, and often at times those would be in uh, public uh, law cases. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, so yeah, section 38, 31, yeah. Fine, but I mean, um, in, in the private sphere, is there scope for... I don't know, a Section 7 report to be written by CAFCAS and then to recommend work with an ISW, you feed back to CAFCAS, I don't know. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, that that is definitely a possibility. And, and often sometimes, obviously, the ISW can liaise because sometimes the family may have been known to the local authority previously and there might have been a Section 37 undertaking uh, by the local authority. Um, and of course, the ISW can make contact with the local authority and make those findings. Um, I mean, it depends on how long those assessments have been undertaken. But yes, definitely, we, we can liaise with CAFCAS workers and um, obtain information if there are any um, on mm. records uh, as part of our initial inquiries. I was just thinking when you were saying that, because you're I know that you're, you've got a, a background in both public law and private law proceedings. Public law, obviously, we generally get a lot more by the way of assessments, like parenting assessments, etc. I suppose that's another benefit that you can bring is that you're able to do those assessments, whereas you, we can put it in a Section 7 report to be covered, but CAFCAS just don't have the resources to do a full assessment, do they? No, and I mean, those are time consuming. They, they do <laughs> I, take time. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know. Well, I know Victoria wanted to ask you this question, but it's a juncture uh, suitable, and I'm going to ask if you don't mind, Victoria. But um, <laughs> this this podcast is is intended for all listeners, but we know that lots of solicitors listen, and so Sylvia, help help us instruct you. What is it that that you're being instructed on a case? What what kind of thing are you actually looking for in your instructions, in the letter instruction, the documents? I mean, obviously relevant details, as much information as possible, but relevant to the case. So, um, you know, if there's been previous uh, proceedings, uh, if, you know, we've got those um, information, where, whether there's been previous assessments that's been undertaken by previous experts, obviously those would be useful. Obviously, uh, if there are information regarding, you know, uh, medical information, any expert assessment that's been previously undertaken, um, any contact sessions that's previously been undertaken, the reports from those. Um, specific questions, obviously, in the letter of instruction, looking at, you know, the, the wishes and the feelings of the children, um, looking at what parents um, open to achieve from the whole process so any concerns you know the major concerns so if, if there are concerns about parents vulnerabilities so if there's concerns about domestic abuse substance misuse mental health all those kind of information yeah any criminal history of parents so all of those I'm just there's so many I'm just I think they've all just gone out of my mind now. <laughs> no no it's, it's it's fine I mean but... I I say any information I mean obviously relevant information that yeah. would assist uh, the assessment process and I suppose always... you were saying specific questions so you're looking for a focus to your instruction oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah all right Victoria I, I don't know whether you have uh, any follow-up questions after that well, one of the things I just thought was quite interesting is you've talked about the time that you take when you do your reports. Just so we know when we're factoring this in, how long do you really need? Because I'm conscious of your big selling point for ISWs is that you can give more than the perhaps hour and a half phone call and the one visit that CAFCAS can give. But if we're looking to make sure that you can do what we need you to do, say a hypothetical, you know, one of the parents has left, children don't want to see that parent. We're asking you to get to the bottom of the children's wishes and feelings and try and rebuild that relationship. I know obviously you can't give us a finite answer, 
but roughly how long do you sort of think you need to be able to do that work and produce that report? I mean, as you're aware, some clients are legally, you know, legal aid funded clients and some are fee paying clients. So, I mean, that probably needs to be taken into account as well. But usually I would say a minimum of... It's really hard to give a, 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 I know, because it depends on how complex. I mean, I would say realistically, uh, a minimum would be 40 hours. Wow. That's really interesting. (laughs) And honest. Yeah, that's that's so much more than, than, yes. Than what you can get. I mean, as I, as, I, I am aware of that. Yeah, yeah. I think look, it is really important. <laughs> it is really important to echo what Victoria said earlier that that all of this is said with the utmost respect and admiration for the work that Kafkas do. And I think we have to acknowledge that when we're talking about instructing ISWs, it is for those that can afford it. Yes. Um, and and clearly, this conversation is really about if you're lucky enough to be able to. Um, I want to move on uh, to talk about the other main social work involvement uh, in private law proceedings, which is when things are so serious that the children are joined as parties and are are represented uh, by a guardian. Victoria, I wonder whether you could just first help us in terms of the legal framework and the situations that we might see a guardian being appointed. Well, for those of you obviously listening will know that we always talk quite flippantly about a 16.4 guardian because the very exciting bedtime reading of the FPR gives you the rules under 16.4 of what you should be doing. And there's a brilliant practice direction um, at 16A, which will set out the various things you need to consider and also a really helpful section on the circumstances. So really what we're talking about is perhaps when you've got just a completely intractable dispute for example, over residence or contact, aligned with when you have an irrational hostility to contact. We will have the cases when there's a very good reason why a child may not want to see mum or dad, but perhaps the more difficult cases of when there is no good reason other than perhaps alienation or narrative or vulnerabilities in the family dynamic. So that's sort of one scenario. I think our second big scenario is when, despite the best efforts of mum and dad, because there are cases when parents will adamantly tell you that they are this is the best interest of their children this is what the children are telling them they adamantly believe that the position that they are pushing forward is a what the children want and in their best interests but it's because they've both really lost objectivity so when you're not hearing the voice of a child this is another really good scenario when we'll need a guardian if you've got really serious allegations you know sexual abuse or unresolved matters like that sometimes you do need a guardian to come in And also when you've got a child really voicing their own wishes and feelings, when they get to an age when you really need to start considering what they think. And I've got one at the moment when, you know, we've got a very confident 15 year old who's very clear about what they want and it doesn't mesh with what the professionals are saying. So all of a sudden you need that extra support and you need the children to be represented because essentially that's what Guardian's doing. It's not just the social work how can we help rebuild it? It's actively putting forward a, this is my professional view of what's best for these children. I'll be their voice. Mm. And I think they're the really big ones. Obviously there's a whole list of slightly more complicated ones with the scientific testing. Um, you know, if you've got other more complicated views, but I think the big ones that I see regularly are intractable hostility, when parents can no longer really sensibly put forward what the children need or believe. And when you have 
these more complicated issues um, of sexual assault or a child really voicing their views. Mm. I think that's when I and most of my colleagues, Mark, interested to hear what you think. That's when I look and think we need a guardian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, uh, Sylvia, you've, I, I know from, um, that, from speaking to you that you've written many a risk assessment mm. uh, in mm. your time. Is there ever a situation... I mean, what when you're writing a risk assessment and there's kind of a red flag that, that you think a level of risk or a certain kind of risk justifies a guardian appointment? Absolutely. I mean, those, Victoria's clearly stated, those would be instances where there are um, safeguarding issues or, you know, parents are not just putting the child in the forefront, uh, the voice of the child's not being held and listened to. Um, so yeah, those those instances or where there's been a history of domestic abuse, uh, child's been exposed to that. So real safeguarding issues, maybe one of the parents got mental health or chronic uh, substance misuse issues, and the parents are obviously putting those views across, you know, saying, well, I am concerned about contact with the dad or with the mom for these reasons. So having the guardian involved just gives that independent um, perspective. So the child's voice uh, is heard and listened mm. to have yeah, you, and, have you worked, and fully considered. Sorry, I was going to say, have you worked alongside a guardian in, in private proceedings? Yeah, I have. And yeah. how does that work? If you're coming in as, a, as a, an ISW, how does that work in terms of the guardian being for the children? Uh, I think often the times you get the ISW involved in those cases, in cases like that, where there's a guardian involved and one of the parents not happy with what's been proposed uh, and they need an independent view. Uh, I say, obviously this, this other, the, 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 usually it's a non-resident parent, isn't it? Um, you know, saying, you know, I, I, I think my, my child's been coerced or, you know, this is not what my child wants or, I've got text messages on my phone where my child's reaching out for me, or there's a not, you know, someone coming in, you know, it's usually the other parent that that's not happy about whatever decisions or plan that's been put in place. And they need an independent uh, person to come in and yeah. So have you been brought in effectively to, to challenge the guardian's recommendation? Yeah. Interesting. Can I just ask, has that happened more frequently when the initial CAFCAS officer has been made the guardian? So you've got yes. the same view from the same person that you're coming as the other parents saying, well, hang on a minute, it's just wrong. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so many times I've had Section 7 authors and I've made an application for joinder and appointment of a guardian, but at the same time said, please don't appoint this Section 7 author. And every time the court <laughs> told me it's, it's not for us to dictate who CAFCAS appoints. <laughs> Quite rightly, but but the the issue is is that the relationship often with one parent has, has has broken down. Yeah, I agree. And you know, having that independent person to come in and and may not change the whole thing, but just bring something different, like just unpick things in a different way. And like you mentioned, you know, social work is about relationship, and and sometimes if you know that isn't put in properly it can affect the outcome of things really mm. you know you need to have that good working relationship not just with the young person but also the parent think thinking as well. back to um thinking back to just appointment of a guardian is it 
is it is it something that you kind of you always bear in mind when you're writing a report that does this case need a guardian or is it does it have to kind of be specifically flagged for you is that a question for me over time uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it you sylvia if that's all right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, obviously, definitely, if, you know, if it's a really complex case and I just looking from a letter of instruction, I think, well, boy, this is, yeah, this needs, yeah, I do, do keep, bear that in mind, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think, I mean, we're supposed, one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, Victoria, but aren't we, we're supposed to get Kafka's view, aren't we, if we make an application for a guardian, we should or that we're supposed to at least try to have the views of the family court advisor mm-hmm. ideally yes um obviously you know, we all know that sometimes the relationship breaks down with kafka and that's not possible but yes having the kafka officer's views it's going to be helpful and you know it's not uncommon for kafka officer themselves to say we think we need a guardian mm. we've looked at this and we think we need some more help yeah and i, I think we keep it under review don't we throughout yes. the proceedings great well look um i'm incredibly conscious that it's friday afternoon and i'm very grateful to both of you for giving up your time um so perilously close to the weekend so i think i I'll, I'll draw it to a close um thank you very much victoria thank you very much sylvia um we <laughs> well we at the podcast will continue to bring you our blend of experts and barristers talking all things family law but as ever any suggestions are gladly received by tara and myself and our emails are on the website other than that thank you very much for listening and goodbye Thank you.